You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Now we've come to see that the book of Jonah is really divided into two parts. Part one is chapters one and two. Part two is chapters three and four. And the key word to the second part is the word second. Jonah was given a second chance. The Lord came to him a second time saying, go to the great city of Nineveh. Now we know the story well by now, don't we? The original command was to go to Nineveh. Instead, Jonah fled toward Tarshish. And then we see that long, beautiful process of God's transcending grace. God sent the storm. God brought about Jonah's confession by which his real identity was disclosed there in chapter 1 and verse 9. He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. And then came the only solution to the storm, that is that Jonah had to be tossed over the side, and for a while Jonah's lodgings were not in the ship, but in the sea and in a fish for three days and three nights. At last, he's ejected by the fish. He's forgiven. He's given renewed hope. He's given a second chance. And thus the word second is a key to this second part of the book of Jonah. Now we might spend some time profitably looking at Jonah's second prayer. You remember the first prayer. It, began, it begins in chapter 2, where Jonah is praying from the belly of the fish. You see it there. In fact, in the NIV, chapter 2 is entitled Jonah's Prayer from Inside the Fish Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord. And he answered me from the depths of the grave. I called for help. And you listened to my cry. That was his, that was his um, second prayer, or his first prayer in chapter 2. Jonah praying from the belly of the fish. And now in chapter, in chapter 4, we find him praying again, only this time he's in Nineveh. But notice, notice the contrast between the two prayers. The first prayer was in the belly of the fish. The second prayer was in Nineveh. The first prayer was in humility. The second prayer is in carnal, in carnal pride. You see it there in chapter 4. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God. So that, that second prayer was in carnal pride. First prayer, in humility. He's crying to God in his need. In the first prayer, Jonah was found crying. In the second prayer, he's found angry. In the first prayer, he was empty of self. In the second prayer, if you read it there, he's full of himself. In the first prayer, he was, a, he was found justifying God and accusing himself. But in the second prayer, he was accusing God 
and justifying himself. Mind you, the thing they have in common is that Jonah is desperate in both prayers. In the first prayer, he's praying to live. But in the second prayer, he's praying to die. Part two of Jonah then is really Jonah's second lesson. Now, it's one thing to learn a lesson as a consequence of going through physical pain. But psychological, emotional pain can at times be even more painful. Thus, during the first lesson, Jonah was partly motivated by the fear of losing his life. But in the second, there was the fear of losing face. And that greatly disturbed him. So let's look then, first of all, at his complaint. You see it there in verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Jonah saw now what he had perhaps did not expect to see. Remember Nineveh, this was the capital of Assyria. Assyrians had treated everybody around them with the utmost cruelty. They were, they were the worst of the worst of people. The worst people that you could think of. That was, that was the Ninevites. And, and he couldn't believe that he would ever live to see the people of Nineveh in sackcloth and ashes and prayer and praying to their God. I mean, Jonah's God. Praying to Jonah's God. The Assyrians being the enemies of Israel, Jonah was probably secretly rejoicing in the prospect of God's judgment falling on them. He was preaching judgment upon these people. Forty more days and judgment's going to fall on these people, and Jonah wasn't going to shed any tears over it. It's so easy to mix our own selfish motives with the purposes of God. How did Jonah feel? How did he feel whenever he saw these people repenting? His bitter enemies. I, I, I don't know. I try to imagine what that would be like. And, you know, I tried to think of illustrations of that, but they all come up short. Um, you know, try to think of someone. I, I, try, I try to think of someone, you know, who has lived through the troubles here in this province and maybe watched someone that they loved dearly being brutally murdered. And, and maybe even realizing who the person is that murdered him. Maybe, maybe that comes out and, uh, and that person is convicted. He stands trial and is convicted of murder. And imagine in prison that that person is converted to Christ, is saved, has all his sins forgiven, all his sins blotted out, Everything that stood between him and God cancelled out by the grace of God, by the mercy of God. How would that 
relative of the victim feel about that? I, now, that's not very, it's not a very close comparison, but it's, it's the closest thing I can think of. I, I think of the, if the person, if the person who was the close relative of the victim was a Christian, I would like to hope that they would rejoice in the fact that the murderer had been converted. I would, I would like to think that that's the case. But not so with Jonah. Not so with Jonah. Jonah did not like to see these people repenting. You see, sometimes we can set up our own opinions and think that God is bound to honor our opinions and confirm our plans. Perhaps Jonah was thinking of his own honor when he got so excited and angry. Because after all, remember, he had been preaching 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now that God was going to spare the city, what would they think of him as a prophet? He would think he's not much of a prophet. After all, he was prophesying that Nineveh was going to be overthrown, and it's not overthrown. See, we're not much use in the Lord's service until we're willing to become fools for Christ. His complaint. And then the second thing we see here is his prayer. Verse 2. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He prayed to the Lord. If, if Jonah's heart had been filled with anger, how could he pray to the Lord? How could he pray to the Lord if, he was, if he's full of anger? No, no one can pray with anger in his heart. And yet, yet isn't, this, isn't this the remedy for all unholy passion? You feel anger towards someone. You feel resentment towards someone. What's the solution? Get to your knees and pray. I've learned that personally over the years. You know, in the ministry, you get the odd knock or two, believe it or not. You're never short of critics. And, and sometimes those things come when you're feeling particularly vulnerable. And your first feeling is one of resentment. You go on the defensive, you feel angry, and, and over the years, the, the only way I have learned to deal with that is to get on my knees and pray for that person that has really got up my nose. That's really annoyed me. Now, I've discovered it's very difficult to hold resentment against someone that you're praying for. You try it. Very difficult. It's wonderful how our thinking can 
gets straightened out in our prayers, isn't it? It's wonderful how things can become a lot clearer even in our prayers. And, and not just even in things like that, like potential resentment. You know, I remember when in my first charge in Third Portland Own, we had an elders' prayer meeting every Saturday night. I remember saying to the men, I, I don't expect you all to be there every Saturday night, but I expect you all to be there regularly. And they were really, really supportive. I always had probably about two-thirds of them there every, every Saturday night. And sometimes I was coming to that prayer meeting, and sometimes, you know, I hadn't finished all my preparation for Sunday. And I was tempted to think, you know, I would be better spending time in the study than going down to this prayer meeting in the church you know what I discovered? Because I had to learn to take a notebook with me and a pen to the prayer meeting. Because during the prayer meeting, during, while someone's praying, suddenly the subject that I've been wrestling with in the study, that I couldn't, I couldn't get it into manageable portions, it just fell into place. And I'm scribbling away while someone's praying hoping that they didn't open their eyes and see what I'm doing. But, but I believe that was so important. As I was praying, God was dealing with the situation. And, it, and it's so important, I think, to do that. When we open up our hearts to God in prayer, then our crooked ideas become straight. Notice that in Jonah's prayer, there's revelation. And here we see the reason why he fled from God in the first place. Notice what he says, I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God. Do you see what he says about him? Slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Isn't this the very reason why some of us have fled to him? Because he is a God who is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. Well, what does Jonah mean here? Perhaps this, I, I knew that, that you're a merciful God, and, and though I prophesied destruction, I knew that you would forgive them, and so my preaching would be in vain, and I would be mocked for my trouble. There was much of good and evil, both in Jonah. But we can learn something more, not just about his complaint and his prayer. We can learn thirdly from his testimony because his description of God's character is absolutely superb, isn't it? It's superb that God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. How could Jonah be angry at such a God? He is gracious to consider the sinner's need. He's merciful to forgive their iniquities. Folks, can you say like Jonah, I know him. 
Jonah could say, I know him. I, I, I knew you would do this because I know what you're like, Lord. I know you. Can you say that personally? I know you, God. He's slow to anger. What a mercy. In, in this age of hurry and excitement and go, God is slow to anger. The devil knows that his days are short, and so he's always in a hurry. God is slow to anger. Why do you despise such great kindness and, and weary out the patience of God? Oh, remember that, that though God is slow to anger, when he does strike, it will be the blow of the Almighty. But you know, it, it highlights something for us, doesn't it? it? It highlights a question, at least in my mind. How can a holy God, how can a holy God be gracious? How can a holy God be compassionate with sinners, with rebels? How can a holy God be slow to anger? How can a holy God be abounding in love towards rebels? How is that possible? Well, in the Old Testament, there's great emphasis put on the sacrificial system, isn't there? How important it was to take a lamb without spot or blemish and to offer up that lamb as a sacrifice for sin. And, and that's a picture of what was coming, the once-for-all sacrifice that was coming. It was pointing to Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And because the sinless Son of God came to this world and, and died in place of the sinner, became a curse for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. God poured out his wrath on his Son so that God could be holy and just and forgive guilty sinners. Do you see? That's how God could be gracious. That's how God could be compassionate. That's how God could be slow to anger. That's how he could be abounding in love. Because he's looking forward to the sacrifice of his precious son. There was Jonah's complaint. There was Jonah's prayer. There was Jonah's testimony. And then there's lastly his foolish request. Do you see it there in verse 3? Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? His foolish request, Let me die. Here's another manifestation of selfishness. It would be better for me, Jonah says. It would be better for me. It's the old, old story of me first. 
Isn't this the fly in the ointment of, of much of our Christian service? Isn't it? Self-seeking. It's a temptation that every Christian faces, especially Christians in full-time service. It's a temptation that many preachers face. Self-seeking. How will I appear? What do people think? Remember, years ago being asked to give a word of testament in my home congregation in Kelly Morris. And uh, I'd, just, I'd just taken a wee, one of those wee stick-up notes, and I just put, before, during, after. So I was going to talk about my life before conversion, I was going to talk about my life at conversion, and I was going to talk about my life since conversion. But I, I wrote above it, do not touch the glory. What do I mean by that? Make sure you give God the glory, that you don't take any glory for yourself. Any of us who testify, testifies to the saving grace of God must give all the glory to God because he's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the God who initiates our salvation. Left to ourselves, we would never go seeking after God. He came seeking after us. But there's some faith mingled with, with Jonah's faults here. If he knew it was better for him to die, then he had a good hope for the world to come. Let me ask you a question here, just at this particular point. When it comes for your time to die, would you be able to say, it's better for me to die? Would you be able to say that? Paul said, to depart and be with Christ which is far better. Would you be able to say that? It takes faith to die in gladness. Maybe you think how blasphemous Jonah was talking to, Jonah was talking to God like this. Did you ever pray when you were angry? Don't we normally say that when we come into God's presence, that we come humbly and meekly? But there's none of that here at all. Jonah was angry. He was fuming. I mentioned Jonah's two prayers. I referred to the first prayer in humility and the prayer in pride. The first prayer when crying, and this time he was angry. The first prayer, he was emptied of himself. The second, he's full of himself. The first prayer, justifying God and accusing himself. Now he's accusing God and justifying himself. And the first prayer, he was praying to live. Now he's praying to die. But there's one more comparison to be seen in the two prayers. And that is, the two prayers are just alike 
in that they achieved the same result. Do you notice? In the first prayer, Jonah said he cried. And what does it say? In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. So here we discover that God heard him. And now angry Jonah prays, and God heard him. Jonah was greatly displeased, became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is this not what I said? But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? So God heard him. Wonder, does that surprise you? God heard him. God was so gentle. You will say, Surely not. For, for God only hears us when we're humble. But have you forgotten? Have you forgotten? You see, God still listened to Jonah because God is slow to anger. He's abounding in mercy. The same result. God heard him. God heard him. The reason is that we have one at the right hand of the Father who has already pacified God's justice, as I said to you, has placated his anger. And so God deals with us in tenderness. And so how gentle, how gentle and gracious he was to Jonah. God simply replied, Jonah, have you any right to be angry? And the answer, of course, is no. No. None of us, none of us have any right to be angry with God when we think of what he's done for us. He's done everything for us. Every good and every perfect gift comes from above. He's the God who gives us life. He's the God who gives us the ability to breathe, to walk, to talk, to think, to hear. He's given us everything. Have you any right to be angry? He is the potter. We are the clay. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Now, I'm very conscious that People, lots of people have it very tough. Have to come through from some very, very difficult circumstances. And, and I'm talking about Christian people. Speaking to a man just, just this past week. And he was up visiting the grave of his daughter-in-law. Who had died just one year ago that day. A young woman. 32 years of age. His son was only married to her for three years. And, he's, and his son's a believer. And he says to me, you know, I can see he has issues there. He's angry. He's angry. I can appreciate that. I can understand that. 
But I know that my Father in heaven can also understand that. And he loves him. And he loved this man's daughter-in-law as well. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? We trust him. Think of another situation. A colleague of mine had a young girl in his congregation. She died on her 16th birthday. And I remember him saying at her funeral, she did not die too soon. All the days ordained for her were written in a book before one of them came to be. God had determined that that was the length of her life, 16 years. None of us are guaranteed 70 years, none of us. Some of more, a lot more, some of a lot less. But God is our Heavenly Father. He loved us so much that he gave his son to die for us. Why would we doubt his love? Why would we doubt it? Have you any right to be angry, he asked Jonah. He's the potter. We're the clay. Thus we have here Jonah's second chance, his second prayer, his second sin, his second lesson, and also his second forgiveness. The same God who forgave him for, for running away is still with him. Have you any right to be angry, Jonah? And here's the wonderful thing. God deals with us in the same way. We do not deserve him to listen to us. We don't deserve him to answer us. We have sinned. We have been irreverent. We've been disobedient. We've been stupid, selfish. We have done those things that could and should cause us to blush. Psalm 130, verse 4, the psalmist says, There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Believer, that's a great comfort, isn't it? That's a great comfort for those of us who know the Lord and have disappointed the Lord time out of number. There's forgiveness with you. So that God may be feared. And unbeliever, this is application to you as well. Because he offers forgiveness to the whosoever will believe. Will you close in with that offer and receive his forgiveness? What does he require? Well, what we were saying this morning that you repent, that you turn away from your sin and trust him. I pray you'll do that. And may all the glory go to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these simple lessons that we've been looking at from this passage of your word. Lord, write your truth upon our hearts. Help us to take away something that we can remember from this service 
this evening, that we might glorify your name and serve you better in the week that lies ahead. For Jesus' sake, amen.